When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Conspiranormal. Here we are, guys, on Conspiranormal yet again, and uh, we've got a really cool show for you guys. And uh, Serfiel again, like you know, set this thing up tonight. Uh, he set up this whole this whole thing as far as like we're going to talk about ley lines. And we've got uh, our good friend John Chadwick all the way across the pond <laughs> joining us. And uh, John, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, man. Thank you. It's really, really nice to be invited um, on. Um, yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a couple it's been a couple of years, but yeah. uh, here here you are, and and uh, we're going to talk about a great subject tonight. And, and admittedly, it's one that. Uh, I kind of had to do my homework on the last in the on the last couple of days. I didn't really, you know, it's always it's been an interest, but I don't really know a lot about this topic. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what what we what we talk about. And Sergio, kind of like go on like your idea for doing this show. Like why why did we want to do a show on ley lines? Well, you know, ever since the new age really popularized these ideas, I think a lot of people have these kind of really vague concepts of. They'll talk about ley lines or vortexes or things like this. And um, without really knowing like what exactly they're talking about or what these things really are or the history of our modern conception of these things, 
Uh, so I know me and John have talked about this stuff a lot. So I thought he's he's been doing a lot of research on on the similar thing called the similar phenomenon called spirit roads. And so I wanted to get him on and, you know, us kind of give a background of where a lot of these our modern conceptions, these ideas came from, because a lot of it is in England um, with the, uh, you know, lining up the the historic structures and megaliths and those ideas. So um, just want to bring him on and talk about kind of all this stuff, uh, earth energy, ley lines, spirit roads, where all this really comes from. Um, a lot of the European history, and uh, then bring it back over here to the states too, in the uh, the Native American stuff. So I, I thought it'd be good to get him on, and let's just kind of give everyone a primer on this stuff. And he's been doing a a lot of research on spirit roads in particular, I think. Yeah, more so than ley lines. Um, but then there's a blur of uh, what these things are, and almost like what has entered into uh, the modern. Um, I'm going to say modern folklore, um, yeah. because I think that's really what we're, we're, we're talking about. And, uh, you know, the, the ley lines themselves could be deemed to be that, certainly by mainstream thinking. Um, you know, this is uh, not something which has any weight to it. Um, but if you were to watch Ghost Hunters or something like that, um, you would find <laughs> that it's kind right. of like um, this very pronounced thing that is real. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have been doing a, a lot of uh, looking into it over the last um, week or so, and I've learned so much myself that I didn't know. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating subject, uh, for the human race, I think it's it's mm -hmm. got something to do with the culture, a very very early culture um, that has but been really recognised. Yeah. So the but the popularization of these ideas that have really come from the the new age and magical slash occult revival yeah. of the sixties and seventies, um, even that ha had still a really strong uh, English and Irish influence. And why? I mean, why do you think that was that? that some of these figures first started to really look at look at this phenomenon in in the UK well the first person to be talking about it is um uh, my world friend alfred watkins um and i think that that's probably got something to do with it um mm -hmm. i mean he get, he he coined the term um and he was he was a businessman from Herefordshire and uh, so this was uh, back in 1921 um, on June the 30th he was now some say he was driving along and then I've seen other things saying that he was riding along on a horse so we've already got a touch of folklore happening here right. because this like there's this weird little doubt here um, yeah, 1921 you could have still had either one so of course you could um but, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe he was driving in a carriage. Who knows? Anyway, he, th there's this guy, and he's on this road, and he sees what he called, um, it's like a chain of fairy lights across the landscape. Um, he said he saw it, it, it as a series of straight alignments across the countryside, marked by such things as standing stones, wayside crosses, ancient churches and hill forts. So he suddenly, he, from his vantage point, he saw that all of these things had lined up. 
And it suddenly dawned on him um, that basically that there was a reason for this. And what he came up with was that these were trader routes and there wasn't really anything mystical about it. I mean, later mm -hmm. on, it's been said that he'd had a mystical vision, but he himself at the time was very adamant that, no, this, this wasn't. This was, this was a recognition of something literally on the landscape. And, you know, it was almost as if, well, the most obvious way of getting to somewhere before you've got roads and you've got transport and all of these things is that you're going to be walking on foot and it's going to be most most obvious that you kind of like walk in a straight line. Yeah. Um, you know, and if there's something in the way, then maybe you would make a diversion, but or you would just clearly walk over it. Um, so... Um, so that's what his original idea was, and it wasn't picked up by um, archaeologists. It did become very, very popular, and then a club was set up where you had people who were lay hunters um, getting really into searching these things out. Um, but he wasn't actually the first person to be talking about some of these things. Um, he was probably just the person that brought it to the forefront. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so yeah, he's a really interesting, uh, a really interesting figure. Um, and then basically, the war came, um, World War Two, that is, in 1939, and all of the interest in this stopped, and um, it was pretty much forgotten about until it came back in the 60s. Um, it was almost as if it had been rediscovered. But uh, 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 sorry. Well, well, where was he um, investigating? Where, what, what part of the country was it? Primarily the south, south part of England, where a lot of the stone circles are. Well, he was. He seemed to be looking. Uh, they seemed to think it was all over the landscape. But um, he'd uh, he'd been looking at a lot of different places. I mean, certainly he'd been looking at Stonehenge. Um, he was a brewery uh, representative, so I think he was going around the whole country trying to sell sell their beer pretty much to different places right so uh, i mean then there were other people that, that then joined in there's a guy called um admiral boy somerville who was a member um and oh. then he started looking at things in the uh, scottish hebrides and in ireland um and he made this really cool observation um there was a guy called, sorry, there was, I'm just going to go back a little bit. There was a man called Sir Norman Lockyer, who was a researcher um, on astronomical orientation of ancient temples. Yeah. Um, and, um, and he noted that Stonehenge was aligned by the rocks to um, certain directions, particularly to sunset and sunrise on particular days of the year. So from that, you've kind of like got this connection now of you've got routes leading to these places in the, uh, in the landscape that almost, again, fit and connect with this idea of lines coming out of um, dissecting these circles. Um, and this later guy, Admiral Boyle Somerville, who was a member of the Strait Track Club, um, which Watkins had set up, um, he noticed that these things were the same in the Scottish Hebrides and in Ireland. Um, but he also noticed that some of these alignments, they continued in lines um, to uh, marks and notches and cairns, which are piles of stones, 
and earthworks on or near hilltops going up several miles away. Well, we can look at that and kind of like go, that's really fascinating. But when you're talking about notches, I mean, what is this somebody seeing something for real or is this somebody kind of like going, oh, there's another one. Oh, and there's another one. Oh, and there's another one. And then it, it becomes like him looking for a pattern as opposed to him actually discovering something of any importance. The, uh, the fact that there is other things on these um, alignments is, is curious. I mean, right. there's no way of getting around it. It, it is curious. Um, but then you, you, we've got a lot of uh, criticism uh, yeah. Firstly, there was one that went through a peat bog, and um, and it was very much a case of like, you know, come on, nobody in their right mind would walk through a peat bog; they'd walk round it. Um, and Watkins had replied, "Well, you're thinking as a modern person; you're not thinking as a as a as a person at the time who might have thought of, of these things in a different way." Um, and that was the first time there was a there was an element of. Um, the importance of these things from above um, and viewing these things, not from the, um, the site of uh, the average height of a person, but actually from a bird's eye point of view. And he seemed to think that that was quite important. He certainly started to have some leanings towards the, uh, the more mystical aspect, but most certainly at the beginning, he was completely utterly adamant. Mm -hmm. that I didn't have anything to do with that, you know? And then before him, there had been a tradition of, of antiquarians, I guess really starting with John Aubrey, who discovered the Avebury Temple yeah. in 1648. And before that, I know some of the antiquarians even theorized that those were just built by the Romans, and they thought a lot of these roads were just built by the Romans. But he kind of uh, then inspired William Stuck Stuckley after that in the 1700s to kind of find this national pride in, in, in this uh, Druidic past, however much of a kind of mythology that that was still, uh, you know, recognizing that these were uh, ancient structures built by native people in the in the aisles. Yeah, the yeah. thought being with the the thought being in Dallas that like they think that the Romans just improved on the roads that they just paved over them, so that's why they thought the Romans built them. But that seems to not be the case. I think really why this old straight track probably took up uh, in in England first was because just the the megaliths were still there yeah. because they were hard to get rid of, and I know that I guess they were seen as a as a uh, enemy of a lot of the farmers, they were actively trying to destroy them, but they just couldn't because they're just so huge. That's right. I mean, certainly when you're looking at something like Stonehenge and the Bluestones have come from Wales, I mean, it's a distance. I mean, it's not something that somebody's going to have to really put a real effort in to get those things from one part of the country to the other. But what people aren't taking into account is that... Um, the landscape was different according to where water was. So in the same way that mm. we now know that the Egyptians were moving their stuff um, by um, boats that could be taken apart and shifted over land and then put back together again, there's no reason why people weren't doing exactly the same thing, um, in which case it would have been much easier to move them. Um, but who knows? I mean, um, you could even use um, something 
to move them upon like a small a stone a fulcrum would actually make it quite easy to move a stone for a group of people um it would still be be problematic but uh but no it, it, it's 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 fascinating but one of the other things that i think is is of interest is that um silbury hill which is the largest man-made uh, uh, earthwork um, in the UK. I mean, it, it really is quite a steep mm-hmm. thing to kind of get up, um, and it's flat at the top. Um, that is part of the Avebury complex, where you've also got these um, lines, you've also got a stone circle, you've got burial um, areas and all kinds of things going on there. You've got this old Roman road that passes down by the side of Silbury Hill, um, and it kind of indicates that, you know, that this is a Roman road, but it's using something that was there beforehand. And so as it's part of the, um, the old Neolithic complex, then as far as I understand it, it, it is, and it has been, well, then in which case we are talking about the Romans certainly have adopted things. But... Um, there's no reason for us not to believe that Stonehenge was there originally. There may have been a holier, more sacred site there, which that has been put on in the same way. Um, we just don't know. That same idea that then continued with the Christianization, with the supplanting of the ancient sacred sites. Most of the, the old churches were on these sites that had significance to the, to the Druids and, yeah. uh, you know, continues today. A lot of those old churches, interestingly, have got yew trees um, in the area, and they tend to be significant to uh, the older traditions. Um, certainly, it was something that you could make bows from. And so you've got a resource there that is of importance to the community. Um, I'm thinking of Lastingham, uh, North Yorkshire, small, very small village, um, but the church is just absolutely remarkable because it has this crypt underneath it where I know that St. Chad and St. Bede had been through as they were bringing Christianity through the country and bringing it uh, uh, northwards. Um, and so you've got this really ancient place with this slap bang in the sense in the center of the of the earth and sure enough there had been a, um, a pagan place beforehand that that had been built on so this has been like this has gone right into the ground it's gone into the heart of it you know and it has the weirdest atmosphere and it's one of these places where if you record you'll pick up um strange almost like ethereal voices you'll have things like uh, battery drainage and all kinds of things and dowsers go there um um I know Northern Earth Mysteries, who have come from this whole movement of ley lines and what have you, they've done, they've done studies there and things. It's a fascinating there, place. There was something that I read today, actually. But what was the, what was that you sent me the about uh, that sixty-six page chapter, Sergio? Who that uh, the author of that was? But uh, oh, there was something I uh, something I read in that yeah. today. John Michelle, the view yeah. over Atlantis. Yeah, the, where he talked about uh, how there's some legends about these churches that they were actually moved by the fairies, and and interesting legends like that that kind of lend to them being 
that they had to be built in that particular place on these lines. Yeah. thought that was really interesting. The, the, the kind of intersection between the ley line concept and also fairy folklore too. They're yeah. also called fairy, fairy roads, right? Right. Um, f- well, I think so. I mean, I'm not, you know, splitting hairs. Um, yeah, yeah. But the, 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 there's the phrase fairy paths comes up a lot, fairy but paths. I'm sure people also would, would, there's no reason why people wouldn't refer to them as fairy roads as well. Um, but yeah, this is uh, this is something which goes right back into the oldest traditions within this country, um, <clears throat> and probably, certainly in rural places, you're still you still have these beliefs that these uh, are lines that are being used by spirit. Um, now. You can say spirit as in elementals, as in fairy folk, um, the other. Or you can use the word spirit, uh, meaning dead um, and corpses and um, and ghosts and what have you. I mean, even in Shakespeare, there's a line by Puck um, where he actually says, um, we're now at the time where the spirits are coming out in all of their different kinds and they're, they're using these roots between places. Um, that was not how Shakespeare put it, by the way. That, that was me. He's, he was a bit more adequate. You, you were paraphrasing. <laughs> I was paraphrasing. Um, oh. <laughs> just in case anyone was quoting me there for their <laughs> um, essays at school. <laughs> Don't. Um, but yeah, the, this is this is an area where I'm going to go to this book written by um, my friend um, Andy Pachorik, um called Strange Lands, and he has got a li- wonderful list of names given to the spirits from folklore that have used these things. So, are you ready? Sure, <laughs> Ignis, absolutely. Ignis Fatus or fartus and corpse lights, also known as ignis fatui, fool's fire, fairy fire, fox fire, funeral fire, elf fire, walking fire, shell fire, rolling fire, will of the wisp, will of the wisps, oh, sorry, that's will with the wisps, willow wisps, willy wisps, will of the wikes, Wheeze, sees, Billy with the wisp, Kitty Wee, the wisp, Kitty with the candlestick, Kitty candlestick, um, Kitty or the canstick, Friar Rush, Friar's Lanthorn, Peg Lantern, Jack Lantern, Jack O Lantern, Jackie Lantern, Lantern Men, Hobby, Hobby Tales, or is that Hobby Lantern, Hobbledee's Lantern. Jenny with the lantern, Jenny with the burned tails. Oh, she sounds an interesting person to come across late at night on one of these roads. Um, Jill burnt tail, <laughs> Joan in the wad, John in the wad, moon dancers, husky punks. No, I like the sounds of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, hunky punks. Sorry, that wasn't husky. It's my eyesight. Hunky punks. And then you also have hinky punks. Um... You know, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe integrity of the hunky punks. Uh, maybe the dicks, uh, the, the hinky punks. I don't know. Um, Pinkets, 
punkies. So we've got the dead Kennedys there. Um, Puck lights, puka lights, ghost lights, Tanned Eliladen. This is getting into the Welsh. Um, Canilwal and Curth Gaelgen, Tyna Sith, Canwil Corf, Canwil Corf. Then you've got Corpse Lights, Corpse Candles, Corp Candles, Dead Candles, Sealum Lamps, Fair Maids of Ireland, Weird Lights. Uh, that's almost like Lovecraftian. Bobalongs, uh, Blobs, Globs, Globsters. Death of the Druid. I mean, that sounds like a death metal band or uh, <laughs> a black metal band there. Death of the Druid. I would listen to them. Uh, Droid. <laughs> Water Shiris. La Fau Boulanger. Um, and Fields. And then this one at the end. Sand Yan Yitad. Uh, I mean, that, that last one is so Lovecraftian. It is, it is great. <laughs> And these are all basically the names given to these small um, lights um, that are seen are using these roads or connected to these roads, these routes that are traveling along these alignments. Now, why that would be, you know, I have reason to, um, to, to question. Um, because obviously we're talking about folklore, but people are still seeing these mm -hmm. things. Um, I've had my own experiences of them in the Avebury um, area. Um, and this is an area where people are also seeing things like UFOs. I mean, we'll, we'll probably come to that later where we, we're going to talk about John Mitchell, aren't we, later? Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I find really fascinating is you're not just seeing these um, these lights. There are people seeing spectres and ghosts. So you're getting headless right. horsemen. You're getting carriage ghosts as well, road ghosts, um, things that will run alongside you and try and push you off the road, things that will lead you away and lead you into danger. Um, that's where Willow the Wisp often mm -hmm. comes in. Um, you, you don't want to follow these lights because they will lead you off a cliff or into a, um, a marsh. Um, and um, then you've got this really interesting thing as well. There's a lot of associations with black dogs. So you've got these weird hounds, like the ones that you would have in, um, for example, the Hound of the Baskervilles was um, a play along this kind of folk story, where you've got these wild, mad dogs that are also being seen on that area. You've also got things like um, cows dying um, and um, things like poltergeist activity. If you were to build your house on one of these paths and mm -hmm. obstruct it, so you'll be talking about things like purports and apports of things appearing and disappearing. Um, ways to defeat that would be hanging up little spirit traps, like crosses with strings on them, which will catch them. These are very, very similar to what Native Americans are doing with, the, um, with dream catchers. Um, so similar, in fact, that there almost certainly has got to be a, be some cultural connection to that. Um, you've also got things where people will block areas so that spirits won't be able to get in or get out. You've got these areas in uh, around Stonehenge called Cursuses, which are, are, are delves into the ground um, and 
one of the suggestions has been that because the stones around the outside of them, that they're places to have trapped spirit as a resource, maybe, as a way of, um, I don't know, like a, like a bomb silo. You know, if somebody's going to give you hassle, you know, let's release one of the Billy Bobs or whatever it was that were called, <laughs> you know, one of the one, one of the hunky punks. Let's get one out of the, <laughs> out of the embankment and, and launch him at the French or something. I don't know. But I find that really fascinating because the way that those stones would be lined around these things, and they're, they're long, you know, there's about one and, a, one and a half miles long, uh, one of these things. Um, you've almost got bars around the outside. Um, and I was kind of joking with you two, um, earlier when we were discussing all of this, that if you actually look at Stonehenge being a circle with these stones standing around it, and then you've got these more complicated kind of structures on the inside, um, how much is, of that is like uh, one of these traps for catching wild fish? Um, mm -hmm. That Once they swim in, they get confused and can't get back out again. And I, I, I think it would be great if Stonehenge was just actually a really, really cool spirit trap. You know, yeah. they've got in. They've been wandering around there for millennia, trying trying to work out how to get out again. Um, so then, these these folk traditions continue into the Christian era as well, and they yeah. really center center around uh, funerary rites. And the uh, the townsfolk right. have specified paths to the um, to the graveyard that's usually adjacent to a church. Well, for some reason, there's some ruling that basically only certain churches can bury the dead. Mm -hmm. um, and so you've got things like, well, communities where they therefore will now have to trek to this other area um, to be able to, um, you know, uh, get a Christian burial. Um, and so you've got these things take very odd and interesting routes. There's, um, there's rituals where people would have to have walked round um, a hill fort, for example, maybe several times before continuing onto their route. And so you've got this, again, this connection with taking the dead um, along a route to somewhere um, for, for burial. Um, then you have stories where people have actually seen funeral parades going past on the roads. There are people who then have claimed that they've seen trooping fairies using the paths themselves, again, in, like in a procession. You don't want to get in the way of them. Um, they're not all, all small little things. These are kind of like um, people who are three foot tall, um, dressed in almost like peasant, peasant um, dress. They're not the elite aspect of the pharaohs. This isn't um, Oberon. This is almost like the peasantry. Um, like a different, a lower class. But then you've also got these elves, spirits, fairies that are the same size as, as the average person. So you've got like a, a real um, range of what these descriptions are. Then you've got this really fascinating thing where along the route, there are places to rest the coffin. And that's when people will do things like, say, um, prayers, um, I mean, it might take somebody overnight to get the coffin there. So they would stay somewhere um, along the way. 
and um, at this point they would be doing rituals to kind of like bless the spirit of the dead and what have you because people were very adamant that um, when I die you will take me by that otherwise I'm going to come back as a revenant um, then we've got something else where you have necromancy um, which sounds absolutely terrifying. Um, it, it, it's straight out of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this is I, audio, I was, isn't it? Nobody would have seen that. <laughs> I, I, I was gonna, I was gonna add something um, just to that about the processions. I've heard similar stories like that with about Hawaii, that there's these little creatures that do these processions. So you mean we're we're talking about you know, the British Isles, and then we're talking about Hawaii. We're talking about two separate yeah. cultures that were separated for thousands of years, but yet they have similar stories that fit with each other. Do they also have the necromancy aspect? I mean, you I, know, I don't this, know. That's a good question. We're not talking about people kind of uh, uh, doing some kind of like black magic rites, which <laughs> the word necromancy tends to be a. Uh, uh, connected to we're talking about mediumship um, we're talking about seers um and yeah. you would have specific people in the village whose job it was at some point during the year a special day to basically sit um in one of these areas quite often you know on top of a hill fort or notably um at the way into the church you would have a specific set of styles to get through the church you would even have somewhere where you could rest the coffin um, um, in, in front of the church. And in that little al alcove, you would have somebody sitting. And what they would be looking for is who in the community was going to die within the next year. Because mm -hmm. they would be able to see the funeral coming along the road. Um, and then you would also get this thing where they are using this for direct communication with the spirits um, and gaining information from them. And what's fascinating about that is that we find exactly the same thing in shamanic culture in other parts of the world to do with the same idea that spirits yeah. are traveling in a line between one area and another area. And a lot of it's really about the, the successful crossover to the afterlife or world of the dead, because if it yeah. doesn't happen, then they're going to come back and haunt you. That's right. And again, uh, as far as Dungeons and Dragons is concerned, the, the word wraiths is used, that wraiths are seen on these roads. Now, these aren't kind of like some kind of um, Scooby-Doo ghost, like an empty cloak <laughs> that you would expect from imagery. That is just the shade. It's the shade of a living person who is already moving on that route because they're going to die, which is really quite odd. I mean, there's uh, noted uh, stories where seers have predicted their own deaths and made the point of saying to their neighbours, you will take me to, via the to the church via the corpse road, and if you don't, I will come back. There's a story connected to... Um, one in Danby Dale in Yorkshire um, um, that has that story with a particular seer. So um, there's clearly some something very old happening here, and the traditions have then continued. And then you've you've also uh, I read that 
I read that book you shared with us, uh, some of some of those chapters, and there's there's rituals for binding spirits uh, yeah. to particular places. There, it's all uh, some of it is about like they'll circle around something, kind of like you talked about before. Like maybe some 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 of these things are to catch spirits or to prevent them from from haunting you, I guess. And and the crossroads too comes into this. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, the crossroads. Um... Firstly, you know, one of the most obvious things in, in, in the folklore is that um, the cross is, to, is the Christian cross. Uh, anything outside of the Christian cross is like no man's land. It's a purgatory. Um, so anybody who's buried there, this is basically um, they, them being cast out. Uh, that's the reason why people are hanged there. There was a particularly gruesome thing, which a lot of people uh, don't realise and don't know, is that there was a practice, um, and it was stopped in uh, fairly late in um, the Victorian period, where murderers, after they'd been executed, they would be, um, th th an area of the centre of a crossroads would be dug up. The person would be, be put in there um, almost upright, and they would be staked, uh, and the stake would run straight through them into the ground. So it's like it's earthing, um, like electricity. It's earthing that hor that horrendous person um, and their spirit, so that they will not be able to come back and um, and, and haunt us. And uh, there was a bit of an out outcry about this in the Victorian period, where people were saying, you know, this is really barbaric, and this needs to stop. Because you would have people, again, almost like um, huge, it's a day off work, and we're going to nail Jeffrey Dahmer to the ground. Um, <laughs> they were doing this, like, in the centre of London, um, you know. Yeah, the, so, um, the Crossroads, also in American folklore, is, is very important. I mean, if you're familiar with the story of Robert Johnson, you know, course. they go to the, go to the, go make the deal with the devil at the Crossroads. Also, black dogs in American folklore are associated with crossroads too, as yeah. are crows. That's right. All, all, all very similar things. Um, so, all these ideas, I guess, kind of just gestate after the Second World War. I mean, I mean, there's still people interested, right? But it's not really until the '60s that they become popularized again because people are looking for you know they're searching they're they're searching for their roots they're searching for a pre-christian past um so what what really happens around the 60s and 70s well you, you've got a lot of new ideas to do with freedom of expression yeah um and so even Alistair Crowley becomes back in comes back into vogue i mean mm. um, he's even on the sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band album cover um and then obviously, as that moves into the late 60s and the 70s, you know, you've got people like Jimmy Page um, and Led Zeppelin, um, Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath, but this interest in um, these esoteric ideas, which obviously have been associated with Satanism. I mean, eventually that will end up in the Satanic Panic and um, people blaming Judas Priest for their son having shot himself, etc. Which, of course, it has nothing to do with at all. Um, you know, uh, Alistair Crowley, when faced with something like that, would just say, well, that was his choice, and he was a bit of an idiot. <laughs> and, um, and it wouldn't have anything to do with the devil. <laughs> um, you know, um, 
I'm not a huge fan of Crowley's, but I, I, of course you can't deny the man's importance uh, yeah. on the 20th century because so, yeah, the Straight Track Club is revived then, right? And it becomes the Lay Hunters Club. Right, that's another thing. Yeah, so um, you've got this thing happening with um, with the UFO subculture as well um, happening there, um, where. You've got all, you've got things like festivals happening. You've got Glastonbury Fair happening, and that's happening in the, where the tour is um, in Glastonbury. And then you've got all these psychedelic bands and people using hallucinogenics um, and all kinds of things. You know, you've got bands like Hawkwind and Gong playing, and um, and 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 the sex is easy, and you know, a lot of the constraints of the past have gone. Because these, this is the uh, war baby generation, and so they've mm -hmm. been raised with rationing and all kinds of stuff, and it's gone. So now they can do what they want. Oh, you've also got the pill, um, and um, so you, so people are kind of like looking for new ways and rejecting old ways, and so the things like the ley lines will have been a fascination to them, because you've got this. Um, idea of what in England was. Um, the Lord of the Rings also has a hugely mm. important uh, um, thing happening at the time as well, which you can see in music. Um, I mean, you know, even Mr. Spock had a song about Bilbo Baggins. Um, <laughs> and what a great song it is. It is, and what a great video. <laughs> you know. And so this all all these ideas kind of coalesce around what becomes known as the the, the uh, Earth Earth the oh, Earth Mysteries movement. Well, I think and... that would have been a pocket of it. Yeah. Whether or not you know everybody who's getting stoned um, is um, is into that. Um, but there's a lot of new ideas to do with the culture. I mean, you've got the Process Church kind of like um, um, coming up in in, in London. Um, as well, um, and then obviously, I suppose the culmination of all of that is the Manson family um, in uh, Los Angeles or outside of Los Angeles. But um, as for John Mitchell, who was the, one one of the big people for, that we were talking about, um, he had some really strange ideas where it, these little lights, um, the hunky punks, whatever that you want to call them. Um, and now to do with a, it's almost Graham Hancock, but yeah. with no grounding. Um, <laughs> there's like this ancient um, serpent cult that was worldwide. And what right. they were actually really worshipping were UFOs. Because even when you come to the um, Chinese, Japanese culture, you've still got these lines but they're also connecting it with dragons and they're just basically seeing for some reason flying dragons in the sky as ufos to him right and so you've now got flying saucers and which he's very openly using that term because that's the period um which to us probably seem quite ridiculous now if somebody was to call such a thing a flying saucer but that was the the the, the go-to phrase yeah. so you've got flying saucers using ley lines to get about um, this idea that ley lines might have been a part of some kind of ancient lost technology. Yeah. Yeah. Which Walter Bosley talks a lot about that in uh, in his books about the 
and especially with like the airships, the redis what he sees as the rediscovery of the ancient technology that uh, the airships are gliding across the ley lines using the electromagnetic energy or whatever it is. That's a big well, element in his stuff too. Well, I, d- I did an interview with Walter, um, which is in one of the Urban Weird books uh, put out by Weird Harvest, uh, which is the publishing side of the folk horror revival. Um, and um, there was a lot of things that he was saying, which for me was like, can this be real? Can this be true? And then when I would go away and have a look, and it's like, oh my God, that is weird. What the, there is something strange happening here with Disneyland. Um, I don't know, maybe if you want to get onto that later, but yeah. there's certainly there's certainly the way that that thing has been built, which actually fits to a lot of, um, of things to do with lays and henges and burrows and what have you. There's something odd about it, um, or it's coincidence. But um, yeah, we are now onto telluric energy, aren't we? And, um, and right. lines of latitude and this so, idea of this earth grid, which isn't necessarily the same thing. Yeah, I really want to stress that I guess Michelle is really seen as being someone who really puts this stuff together and repackages this all together because he he sees this like dawning of the new age that he gives England a special place in because he's this kind of like mystic hyper nationalist, you know, it's kind of weird and his politics get a little dodgy. But uh, I guess I'm going to I want to read some quotes just so we can kind of like put it in context. He says the. uh, the evidence here assembled points to the former existence of a civilization based on the manipulation of certain natural elements, a, m- a form of spiritual engineering whose implications are now barely conceivable. Um, he talks about how part of this also may be consciousness change and that these environments create a kind of revelation, uh, which is what he thought. Uh, Alfred Watkins experience when he first had that revelation about the old straight track. And he says, uh, this is all from uh, the uh, view over Atlantis. He says, it's essential. It's essential element consists of a method whereby certain incommunicable knowledge can be gained through a course of study in preparation for induced moments of perception in which aspects of the hidden universe stand out clear and orderly to the inner mind. So that's the whole idea, too, that these places actually affect consciousness. Yes. Yeah. And that also fits with a lot of the shamanic ideas um, that you will find in, um, in tribal communities, certainly with um, the Aboriginal in Australia um, and also... I think when you get into um, into North America with the um, the uh, ancient tribal cultures there, um, there's a couple of things to do with those those kind of ideas which um, echo with separate sources for me as well. I mean, this is one of the interesting things when you get into this. You actually find that sources which shouldn't be related appear to suddenly have a connection um, of ideas. I mean, one is the idea of holy lines in Germany, uh, which is about the same time as Watkins. Um, there was um, a guy called Joseph uh, Heinz, 
1939, he had a paper called Principles of Prehistoric Sacred Geography. And he spoke of, again, lost magic principles by which holy sites had been located um, in the past. Um, and he claimed the sites were points on geometrical figures in the landscape that uh, are made up of lines uh, based on fractions of the Earth's dimensions. Um, now, you've also got a guy called Wilhelm Teut, who was an evangelical uh, parson in Germany, um, and he claimed that these astronomical lines were called Heiligeleinen, which is literally holy lines. And right. um, he saw them radiating from a a rock cut chapel, which was actually in some twists, twisted stacks of rocks in Saxony in West Germany. Um, and he had he thought that it was a solar observatory, and these lines were radiating um, out of the center of this thing, and that then again you've got alignments on it. And so really, for me, when you're talking about Mitchell, he seems to have taken the Watkins idea. He's kind of taken the, um, um, the, the more shamanic kind of like ideas and he's taken this. And with you talking about the nationalism, it's interesting that those ideas were also picked up by Heinrich Himmler um, during the rise of the Nazi party. So you've also got this nationalist aspect of it and this national pride to do with um, ancient traditions and, and heritage, which, you know, if you look at the far right now, they're, all, they're also using that terminology to justify their beliefs. Um, and it's almost become a, repl a replacement for the, uh, for the white power that they used to. Uh, but, you know, these are things that are very much coming out of, out of Europe. Um, I don't know what, what what it's like over where you guys are. But there's there's some some elements of that little bit, but not I, not as much I think as in Europe. I think uh, there's a, there's certainly elements of it coming from the black metal um, I'm seeing in Scandinavia. Sure, um, absolutely, yeah. Be, because well, you've got all that stuff that happened with uh, with mayhem when they when they first started and the church burnings. Um, not that I think that they're all anything to do with, uh, because I mean the guy who started the uh, the band Mayhem, he was a communist, so you couldn't have got further well, apart uh, politically. Serfiel um, isn't uh, isn't that Varg guy, the one that killed the yeah, other dude? Isn't he like yeah. really far right? In yeah, fact, yeah, he's ultra nationalist uh, yeah. Norwegian idiot. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? That wasn't too, yeah, too harsh yeah. a word, was Be it? Be careful. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. He's got a lot of fanboys out yeah, there. He's, he's already, he, he's already killed he somebody. Uh, yeah, and he, only, and he only served a small amount of time for it as well because of their system. Um, he's very liberal. Um, so um, he wasn't in for long, and he had the chance to write some other albums on uh, Bon Tempe keyboards and things. <laughs> um, but then he, I've I've heard I've heard him say things about that serpent cult as well. Interestingly enough, and um, he's said that basically that they have the image of the serpent um, um, outside of uh, temples and, and later churches. Um, and from what I gather, talking to people who 
are part of the pagan um, heritage culture and what have you and living that tradition in um, and, and have the knowledge that that's actually untrue um, so uh, I mean the last thing I want to get do is get to trouble with the far right again <laughs> I've had enough right. trouble with <laughs> <laughs> So I guess a, a lot of this comes to um, next really comes to the ideas of astronomical alignments being the source of a lot of these lines. Uh, they especially are in uh, in Europe with the with the standing stones and with these some of these complexes being um, astronomical devices to uh, view the they have markers for the solstice and equinoxes. And you see that all around the world, and it seems unrelated from the spirit road ideas, but when you think about it, their importance they had uh, in their cosmology to the spirit actually passing on through specific astronomical phenomenon, it's basically the same thing. It, they might have oriented these things to keep track of things, not only for um, for agricultural reasons, but for spiritual reasons as for the spirits actually passing through certain constellations or the Milky Way or whatever is specific to that culture. Uh, that, that's right. And I think if you look at what's interesting is if you look at the, um, the shafts in uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza, um, which is now being seen as like um, the as a metaphorical route for the spirit to actually leave um, the uh, king's chamber um, um, up to the outside of the uh, of the pyramid and out to the stars. Um, I think is it going to Sirius in the Ryan's belt or something? Um, you, you've you've got a similar thing um, um, happening there. You've got a, a route of sending the the dead onwards into the other world, um, and you know. Uh, <laughs> You can understand how something like um, like this would work. I mean, people haven't got the same ideas of they 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 have they aren't blessed with our knowledge and our information of um, how the world works in the same way that we aren't with our descendants who are coming, who will see see the, everything in in a completely different way and see us as being idiots. Um, so. You can use these astronomical uh, alignments to make predictions. And that is a very powerful thing. This is man taking control of the landscape. Because once you understand how the seasons change, now you understand basically um, things about uh, getting resources for the winter um, um, and harvest and planting seeds. Um, and so I suppose... This is an aspect of magic for these people. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be a, a form of geomancy, right? Which really Absolutely. is what um, what we see in in the Far East as well, in, in Asia and China with the ideas of Feng Shui. Um, something yeah. this all really ties in. 
you've got a lot of similarities to feng shui again you've got this element of basically that you don't build on these lines um you don't put blockages in these on these lines um the spirits are using these uh, again for for travel um and they travel in straight lines um, you you've got to keep these things clear and fresh and the, what, there's an interesting story that comes from Ireland about a man who was having problems on his farm and, um, and a traveller who was working there telling him, basically, this guy's cows were dying. What does that sound like? Um, um, you know, you've got, you've got bulls of light passing through your area and your cows keep dying. I mean, um, this is Skidwalker Ranch all over again, but this is in Ireland. And right. he's advised basically to keep his doors open on the front and the back so the ferries can pass through. And that is also something that you'll get in, in, in Feng Shui. Yeah. You've, you've, still got, you've still got rules in Iceland, basically, where you can't build on these paths. And um, until yeah, they, the... they, build the, they build the roads around ferry yeah. hills and all that kind of stuff, yeah. And, and in China... Um, the, the the paths were owned by the emperor, so if you built on those, that that building was going to be torn down and you were going to be punished. Um, and there's a story that I came across where a guy had died um, and had been wished to be buried in a particular place, which happened to be on um, this path, and the authorities made them dig him up and move him and bury him somewhere else. And when the Chinese had their revolution. Um, and got rid of all of their emperors and what have you, that guy was dug up again and buried back where he wanted to be. Because now it was like, freedom, you can't tell us where to bury anybody. We're burying him here on the spirit road. Um, so there's, there's some really fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you've got, again, this idea of burying people on these areas, things to do with the, do with the dead. The avenues leading to Stonehenge, um, which were procession ways, They've had, got people buried along the, the outside of them, um, as have those curses, I believe, which were the uh, su well, suggested to be these sources of power for keeping spirits in them. Um, so then these, these sites themselves that would be these uh, astronomical tools, a lot of them in different cultures were seen, seen as kind of like a, a microcosm of the whole universe in these one yeah. sites because you were replicating the skies here. And then these are the places where heaven and earth are meeting. Um, I just want to read a little something from uh, Hancock's latest from the America Before book. He says, all these places are man-made sanctuaries that speak to the union of heaven and earth at key moments of the year. They might rightly be described as hierophanies because their fundamental purpose is to reveal and manifest the sacred connection between macrocosm and microcosm, sky and ground, above and below. And just like the just like Stonehenge has these stones that are aligned to see the uh, the solstices, you have that, of course, in the Great Pyramids. You have that in the Americas uh, with the alignments of the mounds uh, in the east and then in the west with places like Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, having these type of alignments. And uh, it's just – it's really interesting, and it seems like different phenomenon, but when you really tie it all in, it is about – it's all still about the afterlife and about the connection of these two worlds. Yeah. And I mean, if, when you've got cultures that have become separated by landmass, 
they're going to take on different um, um, cultural ideas, but it's still going to have a root in the same in the same thing um, in, in the same tradition of the origins of, you know, I, who knows when there may have been a group of ten humans. Um, um, Naked and afraid. <laughs> That's what it makes me think of, uh, watching some of those people on that TV programme trying to get through uh, 40 days in a little unit. Um, you kind of look at basically uh, a culture starting and uh, um, you don't know what those original people of the human race you know, when they're coming into kind of like um, a Homo sapien form, you you just don't know how they're thinking and why they would be doing that, and then why they would be repeating these ideas, and then that's when you get a religion starting, and then right. as their offspring end up going Hawaii, Australia, um, you know, um, um, the British Isles. Of course, so there's that there's idea. Be a there's cultural yeah. change, but a similarity. There's that idea that th these things are really just so ancient that they've been carried everywhere. But then there's also yeah. like the the Hancock type ideas that there was a previous like mother civilization yeah. that that all of these are kind of uh, remnants or even corruptions of afterwards. So that's right. Which, whichever one is is uh, is the truth, but we don't necessarily using these ethnographic analogies mean to say that one came from the other or anything like that. Like, I, I really don't know. I think it's fascinating, though. I think, I think you know, there's a danger where people um, always get into this um, phrase, uh, this idea of cultural appropriation. Um, and, um, you know, I can understand why somebody would get pissed off that another culture has nicked their, uh, um, um, an element of their traditions. But right. at the same time, the way that culture works... Um, is um like meme you know and i'm not talking about memes on the on, on the internet um, on social media um the original meaning for meme is basically how a phrase will that will will come up um like somebody for will stub their toe and will have just said uh, bloody hell <laughs> you know and then somebody else sees that laughs and then when they stub their toe they say it and before you know it you've got an entire country saying bloody hell as this gets passed on and then that would then move over to um, another country etc there's all kinds of things that happen that way and it's not cultural appropriation it's just the way that ideas move i mean um, the original ships that had sails i believe were thai um, you know, so the very fact that the Greeks would then have used them at a later date is not cultural appropriation. That's just how ideas circumnavigate, uh, which is something that Robert Anton Wilson was really fascinated in because he thought that basically the faster that we were able to move around the planet, the faster these ideas would then move around the planet also. And so as we're entering the digital age, you know, we have the internet. Now it's our hyperspeed. So you get kind of um, cultural ideas happening at a microsecond, whereas before they would have taken a hundred years, maybe longer to shift from one area to another. Um, but yeah, that, as for the ancient civilization that Hancock talks about, that is fascinating. 
and um, they may they may have been the survivors of a previous uh, civilization themselves. I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? We have no idea. You know. Should we talk a little bit about some of the sites in North America? Yeah, yeah go for um, it. Well, we we can, but I wanted to. Uh, I didn't have as much just uh, marked for that. I kind of just want to explore the, some of these general ideas. But I know okay. in um, in the Southwest, in particular, um, these ro- I've, I've shared some of this stuff from uh, this book, uh, Prehistoric Astronomy of the Southwest. I uh, shared some of those pictures. You can just see. In the Four Corners area, the the Chaco Canyon uh, and ancient Pueblo Anasazi culture, the use of these lines and these sites are, I mean, it's it looks like some of the old straight tracks uh, that Watkins was first drawing. I mean, the connections yeah. between all these um, uh, these kivas and and big villages and uh, astronomical instruments and and places. There's all these straight lines. They use mathematics and geometry. Uh, just as you know, advanced as um, all the other cultures at the same time, and uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. And unfortunately, um, those things haven't been as well preserved in the eastern United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's a lot harder. Not- I haven't seen as many people actually tracing all these sites together in lines like they have in the Southwest. Uh, because only I think the the estimate is only like less than ten percent of these sites are remaining, um, and you had just as extensive horror places. stories of places that had been basically just flattened. Um, so yeah, that, yeah. Uh, well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. In in where you're from, you know, you these stones were just so much harder to move that you still have them on the landscape. But if people could have, yeah. I'm sure they would have just oh, yeah, destroyed of course. Them. Well, certainly. You know, you, you've got buildings that have um, suddenly randomly above a doorway will have a little bit of an arch in there um, that people have literally just taken from um, some monastery that had been sacked uh, by Henry VIII when he when he got rid of the Catholic Church um, and created the Church of England and burnt a lot of the monasteries. People just use the stone. Well, why not? It's just rubble. And and you'll find the same thing that had happened to the pyramids in Egypt. Um, the locals just took the stone. Um, why go and make more stone when you've got a great big pile of them over there that n- nobody's using? It's logical. Well, right. So, so many of the Indian mounds in this part of the country were destroyed. So many of them, and we're into lucky the, that we into have the eighties. Yeah, we're lucky that yeah, right. I mean, we're talking fairly recent times, and we're lucky that we have as many as we do yeah. here now, and they've been preserved. And we're hearing more and more and more about that tradition and that culture now, mm-hmm. um, which I think is great because when I discovered that basically wigwams and teepees and what have you that um, I was used to seeing in John Wayne films when I was a kid um, isn't actually how uh, um, Native people lived. That was something that they were forced into, maybe, or they were used when they were kind of like um, traveling. But they did actually have a lot of fixed areas. That was mind blowing. That was a revelation. That was all new. And it's like, well, 
um, you know, just led to believe that they are just nomadic people mm-hmm. um, going around scalping people. And all of it is just very, very unfair, isn't yeah. it? Um, it? Well, there, it, there yeah. was there was civilizational collapse that was enormous right at the time of initial European contact with the Spanish. So by the time a lot of the French and Anglos were actually coming through the eastern United States, those civilizations were already wiped out. And the remaining people, they, you know, they knew they they had lost recollection or couldn't communicate where that stuff came from. So, in the same kind of, uh, you know, antiquarian traditions where people might have thought that the Romans built Stonehenge, here, you know, you had all this speculation, and that's kind of the ilk that things like Mormonism come out of, all this kind of, you know, mythologizing of the American landscape because there had been this total civilizational collapse of very advanced uh, agricultural hierarchical societies in in the uh, the eastern United States, known as the mound builders now, which is you know goes back at least two three thousand years. Yeah, it only mm-hmm. took the it only took the DeSoto expedition and other kind of sustained contact on the coast to to bring that about. Right. Once the smallpox hit, it it decimated that culture. But, but also was, possibly some internal some internal struggles too. There, yeah. there might have been their own civilizational problems. Right. Well, a lot of it, people don't realize that, like, the Cherokee, which are the main tribe of our section of the uh, of this part of the southeast where we live, is uh, they actually came later. They actually came around about the 17th or maybe even early 18th century. They oh, moved right. in. And like whatever the what what was there before, they were not the Cherokee. That was a totally different culture that had been wiped. And they had the same the same thing that, happened right? in the Am- the same thing happened in the Amazon too, right? They yeah, they were wiped they were wiped out, and they think now that the what was there when I think it was um, Oriana the conquistador sailed down the Amazon River to the sea that there was a very quite advanced civilization that just was wiped completely out. Well, and the, and the English didn't even DeSoto documented all that, yeah. but they didn't get a hold of the actual writings of, and journals of DeSoto until I think into the, well into the late 1800s. Yeah, so and, and it's, and it's it already it, documented, but there was, they, these were just ghost towns to them. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's at least a hundred years, maybe even 150 years before people start going into that area again. Europeans, so it was. It had been gone a long time before that. But I think that a lot of them recognized. I think people who were, you know, we, we were talking about some of these these antiquarians in England. I think a lot of their ideas and other ideas and Atlantean ideas really influenced some of these pioneers who were more mystical minded at the time to um, recognize in a lot of these structures, these same ideas of alignment, geometry, et cetera. And, you know, really, really contributed to um, those ideas of, of there being some kind of trace here to this ancient global civilization or yeah. other civilizations. Well, you've got you've got the theosophy, haven't you? Um, at the end of the Victorian period into the Edwardian period, um, oh, yeah. which gave birth to an awful lot of these ideas, which you can see echoed in John Mitchell. Um, 
you've also got um, um, later on in, 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 in the States from that, you've even got somebody like Joseph Campbell, who's talking about connections between mythology to, um, to, to some kind of like worldwide mm -hmm. human um, original kind of culture where all ideas had, had come from. Um, and although he isn't esoteric as such, he's coming from a Jungian point of view. Certainly Carl Jung um, was esoteric. Um, you've got people like Manly P. Hall um, mm -hmm. over there uh, really looking into a lot of these esoteric ideas and, um, and their connection to initiation and, and logging this stuff. Um, yeah, Israel Regardi, um, mm -hmm. he'd gone from being Crowley's secretary. He, he was... Is he British? He ended up I think so. in the States and bringing that, a lot of those ideas. Wasn't he? He was the first person to uh, publish the um, the initiation rites and practices of the Golden, Golden Dawn, Dawn, I believe, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. Which obviously had, then had a huge impact. Um, so, yeah, you've um, you, you 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 have inherited some of this stuff from i suppose from um, from the uk but at the same time blavatsky um herself she had traveled all over the world she i guess brought things to the uk herself um, i mean the golden dawn supposedly had its roots to groups that were were doing things on the continent um and a lot of these things, for some reason, all seem to kind of like have some interest in the Knights Templar as well, which I, I find very yeah. interesting. Um, so then, um, really, I guess where we can go from now is that in this in, into the age of technology, um, into the scientific revolution, where a lot of these figures are actually more mystical than we'd like to think now, um, did some of these ideas get continued? You know, in, in, into the ideas now of uh, telluric currents and the development of radio and things like this, where were some of these people kind of using ancient ideas and trying to find some scientific basis for them to, to try to exploit it? Well, if you look at uh, Nikola Tesla yeah. and his idea of beaming electricity uh, across continents, um, and this free power source coming from these towers. Uh, I've already seen people saying that this is what pyramids were and that all of these ancient sites were connected in the same way. And so you can see basically, you know, um, has the Tesla thing gone into the ley line thing? Or, you know, did he have ideas that had come from the whole... Um, um, the other direction, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. But certainly when you've got telluric energy, um, that is real, but it's not as it's not as powerful a thing as people would like to think that it is. Uh, it's not this incredible current that's right. firing off. It's not like something that comes. You can get a you can make a, a, a small clockwork. That's about it. It's like yeah. one volt. <laughs> But from conversations with Walter Bosley, um, the people who were putting the telegram communications down, they were the same people that owned the railroads in the States. And yeah. so they were, put, they were using telluric energy to help up the, um, the, the 
communication with the tel- with the telegram. And, and they, I believe they the railroads were, were creating routes. the railroads themselves were creating a lot, also. Yes. Well, if you think about it, the train station and a railroad going to another train station. <laughs> what have we got there? Except that you know you've got a site connected by another site. Yeah. Is that drastically different? Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not hugely different from what Watkins was uh, was recognizing. It's it's just not. And just um, just in my own uh, studies of local history, um, there was a lot of railroad men who were very mystically inclined. Yeah. In the United States, especially if, as far as I know. Um, here, there was a lot. So there's got to be, I think there was something to it. Well, why was that then? That's something that I really don't know anything about. What, what, what was the inspiration there? I don't know. I'm just finding in, in my just delves into local history, how many of these very powerful railroad men were very into esotericism, mysticism. Of course, they were all Masons. Uh. And so I'm just wondering if... Um, in that they would be more inclined to try to, you know, exploit yeah. something like this, or if that had a, a dynamic in the development of the railroads. Right. Absolutely. I, I was going to I was going to question whether or not there was a Masonic connection. Um, oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, just like a lot of other industries. The, when you when you talk to Freemasons in this country. Um, they don't seem to do a great deal apart from getting pissed together. <laughs> <laughs> when I hear about the, the um, Freemasons in the States, they seem to take it very, very, very differently, and very seriously. And they are interested in a lot of these esoteric things and these old traditions. Um, I mean, um, I, I was invited to join for uh, the first time a couple of years ago. Uh, by a guy who was dressed like L. Ron Hubbard on his yacht. Um, <laughs> and um, he was part of some, I can't remember what he said, uh, the, the, uh, the Sheffield Yachting Association or something. And I was like, Sheffield, you haven't got any water. It's, it's, it's landlocked. What, what are you on about? And um, he said, exactly. <laughs> and when he flipped his badge over, it had bullshit written on the other side. I'm not joking. Um and I was like, oh, I thought you were going to say that you were Freemason. Oh, he said, we are. I was like, oh, I don't, I've, I've, I've never been asked to join. He said, well, there you go. He said, where's your local lodge? I'll, uh, I'll put your name forward. And I was just a bit blown away because there wasn't any kind of like secrecy. It was all kind of like, let's get pissed. <laughs> um, you know, let's have a fun time. And uh, there was a couple of them all dressed in these yachting outfits. Um and, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's like having a Czech Navy. Uh, <laughs> there's no water. <laughs> so what? Uh, let's talk about your uh, your interview with uh, Walter. That's in that's in the uh, one of the Urban Weird volumes. Oh, oh, it's just absolutely. It's just fascinating. I mean, he's a fascinating person to listen to, anyway. And. Um, um, so I can't remember the name of the engineer uh, that he was talking about. Do you do you remember? Is it the one that he said that he had spoken to the guy, and when he no, was? No, that was actually Watkins. Watkins it was actually yeah. Watkins, which he, yeah. he which he felt like he had actually um, had an encounter with in Disneyland, and of course right. Watkins would have been dead for a long time, mm. but. Um, 
he later picked up a copy of it must have been the old straight uh, track uh, by Watkins saw his photograph in it and instantly recognised him as being this Alfred that he had actually met at Disneyland. Um, and he's adamant about it, you know. He 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 really is. Um, he he seems very straight up in a lot of ways, does Walter. But um, I mean, that story sounds slightly um, far-fetched and slightly ridiculous. But um, he's he's very serious about it. Oh yeah, know? he's very serious about it. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and synchronicities like that. I mean, even if it, if it was just happened to be a look like, that doesn't that doesn't matter because synchronicities like that happen anyway where there's like similarities to something which kind of like take you in a certain direction um so uh i can't remember what the name of the engineer was but it was somebody that um had been brought in by um the, by the i think the disney brothers um to do the engineering and he actually chose the site um uh, he was connected to um, an awful lot of people involved in uh, uh, esoteric thinking and research within that institute that he'd come from, um, which consequently was also, you know, connections to um, MK Ultra, and um, um, it was where now hang on, what's his name? Is it Inigo? Inigo Swan. Inigo, Inigo Swan. Yeah. He was also there doing a lot of his um, research into, um, um, well, what we would now call out-of-body experiences, yeah. I, I suppose. Remote um, viewing. And spying, remote viewing. Yeah. And so you've got a really in interesting place there with a lot of interesting research going on, and that's where Disney goes to get somebody to help him design his idea of fairyland. Um so the theory is um, that Disneyland has been built in this particular place, chosen by this esoterically minded engineer, because it's where the telluric energies can be drawn up um, and um, can actually be transmitted. Um, now, one of the things that Walter um, brings up is that Disneyland is actually in a little basin. They actually built up... Um, a ditch around the outside, which they've actually got a train track running around. I've never been. I don't know if either of you two have. I've been to the one in Paris. I haven't been to um, um, I've been the to one, one over in. I've been to Disney World, never Disneyland. Yeah. So. Disney World's the one in Florida, right? Right, right. Now, I don't know if they're all built in exactly the same way, like following a, a, a certain pattern, but the one in, the Disneyland certainly has got a, um, it's, a, it's in a ditch. Um, and that as an earthwork, again, it's very similar to a lot of places which have got um, hinges in them. Um, and I just find that interesting. His explanation is, is that once this energy has been drawn out and, um, um, and thrown out, you've actually now, what you've got is motion happening around the outside in a continuous um, route going round and round and round and round. And so as this energy comes up from the center and it's pushed out, well, you, you've, you've got kind of like um, natural forces move, moving things around. It's almost like a, um, some kind of a Tesla um, device in itself. Um, and the energy is basically thrown back in. Um, his idea is that basically it's there to kind of like keep people, um, um, open them up in a certain way. 
um, almost to heighten their experience of being there. And then on top of that, there's a lot of imagery uh, in Disneyland um, to do with things like um, King Arthur and what have you, um, which would be, from a Jungian point of view, would be picked up and you would understand it on a subconscious level and that would, again, help bring on this kind of... It's almost like a subliminal message that it would help build up this fantasy world. Then you've also got the um, sword in the stone, um, which is... The sword in the stone comes from the film... Oh, the King Arthur one. Oh, it was actually just called the Sword in the Stone, wasn't it? The cartoon that they made. Um, you've got that now on the central point. Originally, they had the carousel on there. So you've actually got something, again, spinning. And that supposedly was drawing up the energy. The energy. You've got weird symbolism on the carousel, like Caduceus. Again, esoteric ideas. Um, which he seems to think is helping spread this energy out. And it all sounds extraordinarily far-fetched. But then I went to have a look at this um, drawing of the sword ceremony that he said that they do on a daily basis, where they choose a king of the day, and he lifts the sword out of the stone, um, which Walter seems to think is basically unlocking the energy and releasing it. Um, because they've moved the carousel and they put that there in the place. Uh, and I okay. Went, uh, and Interesting. I went, yeah. And I went and I had a look at one of these videos. I looked at several, um, one after the fact, actually after I'd written the article. Um, I must admit I was a bit disappointed <laughs> because the first one that I found was very eye-opening because you've got Merlin um, using dowsing rods around this point to choose the king of the day. And obviously you have dowsing being um, a regular thing that lay hunters use um, to pick up um, lines of energy of lay lines. And they douse ancient sites um, and, and all manner of things. John, let's, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Aborigine material about about their roads and then there's some some things that you sent also to our little group chat we'll talk about like the the nazca lines and this idea of like with we we touched on this a little bit but the idea of ritual that's involved with these lines that this seems to be very important i think it is and i think that maybe this uh, with the aboriginal culture being so untouched for such a long time and um, I, I think that you've got something which could be looked at as being as close to the original source as you can get um, over huge areas. They have what they call song lines. Um, now, in their tradition, they have got sacred sites which they would... If, if you were to travel that, uh, travel to, you have got this idea that some great event in dream time has happened there. The dream time is their, their equivalent to the spirit world. Um, yeah. That you've got these, um, these 
strange deities that take different forms, um, animalistic forms, uh, that they basically were living here and that, that um, everything has kind of like come from that, um, from that time. Um, and you can still feel them, you can still communicate with them um, through the, um, shamanic trances and the like. So at each location, um, they're equivalent of Stonehenge. Uh, it might be a mound in the landscape. Um, it could be a cliff face, could be a large rock like Ayers Rock. You've got a tradition there and a song to sing, which retells of the event that happened in that place. Um, and from that place, you will be able to see another place where you would also do this. And so they've got roots between these places, these sites, um, which they can travel to, travel along these paths, just to be able to get about. Because if you're out on walkabout by yourself, you've got to know your way around and how to get back to your people and your tribe. Um, now, what's fascinating is that they can do this over huge distances and, the, um, and they're mapping, because that's what it seems to be, apart from the spiritual aspect, their mapping is passed down through oral tradition and memory, through myths um, in songs. Um, and also you have the shamans who will use that site to then communicate with the spirit at those sacred places. So you have, once again, you have walking from place to place in, across, the, across the landscape. Um, it is exactly what Watkins was talking about when he first saw what he did in, um, in, in Herefordshire. Now, if you can imagine that blown up to be right across Australia, that's an achievement. That's, that's absolutely incredible. I mean... How many of us need a shopping list <laughs> to, go, to go and get the groceries? These people can re remember all of this information just through, um, through song. And, um, you know, it, because I suppose they didn't have any other technology. Well, like, the, you know, the, I think it was Paul Devereaux's book that you sent uh, a yeah. couple of the, the chapter about the Nazca Alliance. And, I mean, that was fascinating. In that you've got this idea that they're traveling along these roads and these paths are kind of like a ritual. And there was something in the um, the Gates of the of Atlantis book about, you know, some of these lines forming almost like uh, parts of the body or like a human shape almost um, on the landscape. And so with these two ideas, it was also fascinating about the Nazca lines. It's just like a lot of people have, you know, the ancient aliens, that was always the big thing. They're, they're runways. You can only see them from the sky. Uh, there is an interesting thought that they could have built some balloons and they could have gone that way. But it's also very fascinating that the possibility that they were actually having astral projection, yeah. uh, out-of-body experiences that they, were, that they could then hover in a spirit form or in their trance state and they would see the lines. So that's, that's a, uh, that's a, that, that ties in also with the Aboriginal yeah. experience too. 
And it also ties in with that shift in Watkins' idea. If you remember me talking about um, the criticism of it can't, it, this can't be a footpath that goes through a peat bog, who would do that? And Watkins said, well, you've got to accept that people might be thinking differently um, and that these things maybe need to be seen from above. You've got this idea that basically that not only does spirit use it, and not only um, do the fairies use it, but you've also got seers. And we have that connection again, going back to the corpse roads, um, where you have people doing communication again with spirits um, at rest points along the corpse road. That's exactly the same. It, it, it's just a more modern version and it's a medieval version. Into modern times, there's an interesting um, book called Light Quest by Andrew Collins, where he's actually um, really investigating um, these balls of light phenomenon. Um, and why it is that when people see them, they also have strange experiences. Not all of those strange experiences fit together. So some person would see a, a UFO, some person would see a ghost, some person would see a demon, uh, another person would see um, a, a black dog or what have you. But the origin of it all is these balls of light. And one of the places that he studied uh, very closely was the Avery complex, which is of interest to me because that's what, one of the places where I first experienced these balls of light for myself. Um, he has a story about people camping on top of Silbury Hill, looking over to West Cat at Long Barrow, which is um, basically a burial place. And from there, seeing lights come down across the road, this would all have been, um, again, routes down to Avery, Avery Stone Circle, straight down the, these avenues towards the old Roman road I was talking about earlier. Um, which supposedly is also on a lay, which runs straight past Silbury Hill. They came down, and as they came down, these balls of light changed with what appeared to look like people sitting in a yogic position, um, like in a meditational state, in a lotus position, um, inside a prism in this ball, and it floated off down the road. That doesn't fit with any UFO um, description I have ever heard of in my life. But the weirdness of it fits with, again, this idea that you're sitting on one of these places, on a corpse road, on top of Silbury Hill, is like a huge place to rest and stop. And you're encountering something magical in that landscape that doesn't make any sense. And does it need to? Does it need to be anything more than that? What he thinks is happening is that these things are somehow projecting um, your um, library of images back at you. So what you're experiencing is a personal thing that's come from your own subconscious. And that's why some people would see ghosts, because they're looking for ghosts. It's why somebody else would see a UFO see a craft because they're looking for crafts and it's why people would suddenly see bigfoot attached to these things because it's something that's in their library but what it actually is we don't know but that would be a some attempt by it to communicate 
and maybe we are just misunderstanding the message um, or we can't communicate with it. And so people get scared. Um, I talked about my experience the last time I was on there, uh, on, on the show with you, didn't I? I believe so people could go back. But um, when I had my, uh, the, the last thing that happened to me, which was all very much like poltergeist activity, or staying in the red line in, in the centre of uh, Avebury, um, I saw a manifestation at the end of the bed, which looked like a cloaked figure. And I just instantly thought, and I don't know why I thought it, well, obviously I'm going to see a druid. I'm in the middle of, st of Avery Stone Circle. That's ridiculous. That's so corny. <laughs> and I don't know why I thought it. But when I did think it, it changed shape. And it would now look like it was a woman from, um, like a Jane Austen book, wearing a bonnet and that kind of like shoulder cape which was a quite a similar sh shape in silhouette, if you like. It was just small shift, but it was no longer, it no longer looked like the hermit from the tarot cards. And it now looked like, I don't know, Elizabeth Bennet. Um, and um, it's like, did it do that or did I do that? So, um, yeah, I don't know what this is. And maybe we just... We haven't got the tools to measure it. Right. I, I just don't think that we can see far enough yet. Well, um, speaking about some of your personal experiences, uh, you believe you have one of these spirit paths going through your home, right? Yeah, I've been told so um, by a couple of mediums um, on different occasions, people who aren't connected to one another. Um, there's a couple of things that, that, uh, that always come up. Um, they always mention the name Jeb I've n I don't know anybody called Jeb um, he's apparently a school friend of mine and he rides motocross bikes and um, he always wants me to know that life has its ups and downs just like him when he was doing motocross and it's like great thanks for that again <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who this person is <laughs> no connection to this person but they always bring this up and one of the other things is your house is full of spirit. You've got a spirit path um, running through it. Um, and, um, and that's the reason why you have the activity that you do. Um, and, um, and then um, an ex of mine um, was a medium. Um, and um, there was one evening that we had to sleep in the front room. Um, and... Um, we were sleeping with our heads literally on the route that supposedly is there. And we had just the most appalling night. I mean, she was complaining, spirit being around her all night long, all trying to get her attention, all trying to communicate to her. Um, and um, I had had basically what I thought I'd seen people walking around. Um, but regularly, you know, um, you can be sitting in the front room watching the TV. We've got a glass door from the living room area into the hallway, regularly see somebody walk past there. And the dogs pick their heads up and they look. They even go to the door to have a look. Um, there was uh, one occasion that I'd gone into the hallway with my nephew, who is now 15 or 16, still very confused by this occasion. And uh, we had a big thick curtain across the front door to keep the draft out. And it suddenly just looked like there was somebody standing um, behind the curtain 
it had that shape of somebody there. Um, and we heard the door handle go down and we heard what sounded like somebody trying to open the door, like really rattling it. And then the curtain kind of parted <laughs> as if somebody was coming through and both of us were just absolutely like, what the hell? What, what is this? And nothing came out. And we were just looking at each other and he said to me, did that happen? And I said, yes. And he said, what was it? And I said, I don't know. Just don't worry about it and don't question it. Don't, don't worry about it. Um, um, I've seen things in the bedroom. People have seen things in the bedroom. There's a woman in a red dress that, um, that comes and stands at the bottom of your bed. She looks like some kind of Spanish lady, long dark hair. Um, there's a boy um, who quite often hear running. Um, and then we found out that a child had done an accident on the hill, sledging on a dustbin lid and had gone under a lorry and um, that he'd actually been brought into the place and he'd died in the hallway. Um, oh, man. Jeez. Um, my nephew was sleeping in one of the rooms when he was a child and he had um, some kind of, like, it was, a, it was an, a, the worst nightmare you could possibly have, let's say, he came, burst into the front room, and all he could say was, the boy, the boy, the boy, the boy, the boy, the boy. And he was, in, he was crying his eyes out, um, and he was shaking with absolute fear, and just had to calm him down. And, um, and all he would say was, there was a boy in the room. There was a boy in the room. I don't like the boy in the room. Um, my mother's seen things in that same room. Um, all the same. She actually woke up um, during the night and she saw this boy stroking the dog who um, um, he often sleeps in that room. And he was awake, sitting next to the bed, <laughs> shitting himself. <laughs> with My mother saying, basically, there was a child stroking him in the room. Um, OK, so now this is before... There's uh, before I get into things disappearing and reappearing, um, random things um, that you 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 need like uh, maybe once or twice a day, but you can't suddenly can't find them, and you know where you put them, and they are no longer there, and they will go missing for weeks, and it's like you know I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to sort my phone out because it's running out of power. Um, just plug this in and get some energy to uh, to my phone. Uh, John, I is apologize. It, yeah, no problem. John, is it um, now you've been to, have you looked to see if there are any kind of like ley lines that run through the house? Have you kind of that there's anything in like any well, literature or anything that's about this or? Well, people have said to me, you can't have one running through your house because to be running through your house, you would have to be near a church. And why they presume I'm not near a church, I have no idea. Because um, the, house is, the house is built on what used to be a tennis court um, that belonged to um, a much, much larger house directly opposite. It was part of their grounds. 
Um, and um, they have an old stone wall behind the back of their house, and behind that is a church. Um, it's a Catholic church. And um, the road that we're on is called Church Hill. Um, so we've got a church right in front of us, and at the bottom of the hill, guess what there is? A church. Yeah. <laughs> There's another church. So you got a couple. You got a couple of them. All yes. This, okay. And one of the things that people never talk about is they always say how long a ley line is. I've never heard anybody say how wide a ley line is. And as we're right directly next to this. Um, you know, um, we're, we're, there is something happening. There is certainly something happening. Um, we had um, an experience with a, another... I've got a long list of ex-girlfriends uh, and failed relationships behind me, guys. Um, so I, I keep having to go back to another, another time <laughs> with, with another woman that was there. Um, I am a failure <laughs> at romance. Um, but there was one time I was with this uh, this particular person um, in the garden, and um, there's a log shed um, with all, with our logs piled up because we've we've got a, a wood fire, and um, so I was in the garden and walking along with her, and then suddenly there's this guy just standing there in, um, with his back to us, just staring into the log shed. Um, He's wearing jeans. He's got some kind of like um, a padded, like outdoorsy kind of waistcoat on um, and, and a shirt on. He's got kind of like reddish hair, kind of t tied back with an elastic band. He just looked like somebody who was about to start nicking things. And um, we just both just stood there looking at him. And it was like that moment where you're thinking, what? And then he's gone. And... Um, and I basically said to her, um, what did you see? And she said, because I wanted to make sure that she had, before I told her what I'd seen, I wanted to make sure that, she, that I knew what she had seen. So she didn't copy me. I needed that. And she said, there was a guy standing there and she described him. And I said, yes. And that was just messed up because he was as physical as you two, as I'm seeing you two. Wow. I mean, it was just really strange. And he was there and he was like he was lingering there and now he's not. So the place where I built my studio is right next to that. And I've got a window um, overlooking that, looking directly towards that log shed because I'm determined that I'm going to see that motherfucker again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I would just be curious to know if there are any, with some of these hauntings or these poltergeist situations some of the famous ones whether or not there are any ley lines that run through some of these areas and whether that's a factor with some of them because you said right. you've had poltergeist activity well it's not like here we don't get anything like stones being thrown at the house or anything like that it's trickster yeah. stuff um so it's like um i i, I only drink decaffeinated tea bags um, um, and I don't drink a lot of um, of coffee. I'm not a caffeine person, um, and um, so I've got my own little tin that nobody else touches with my decaffeinated tea bags in <laughs> on the kitchen counter where I know where they are. So basically, I make a cup of tea. I put all the cups out. I get the tea bags out, 
I might just sort myself out. Right. And they're gone. And it's like, and the whole team's gone. So it's like, um, who's had my tea bags? Nobody knows. Anybody seen them? Have I put them in a stupid place? I'm looking in the, everywhere. I'm even looking in the fridge because there has to be somewhere where, where this tin has been picked up and put and it has to be somewhere stupid. No sign of it. And, um, um, and this was while I was doing the show. Um, and I'd even mentioned it to Melissa. And um, it must have been about two or three weeks later I had now stopped drinking decaffeinated tea bags. I was just drinking regular tea and making a cup of tea for everybody who's in the house. I put the kettle on. I go into the front room. I'm nattering. Go back into the kitchen. And where I've put the cups of tea out, there's my tin of decaffeinated tea bags. And no one's been in there because they're all in the front room. Yeah. And they are, they are now exactly where it was that I left them a fortnight ago. It's that kind of thing. And it's like, we just accept it now. We just laugh about it. It's not a scary thing living here. It's just a natural thing. And you just get on with it. And I'm sure yeah. there's hundreds of you, thousands you, of people worldwide who live You like learn it. to live with it. Yeah. I guess is what you would say. Beyond that, uh, that really draws from your personal experience. Do you have any other just speculations about what um, what these lines may have been? If they did have any kind of power that could be tapped into, or consciousness change, things like that, or you well, do you have any just speculation element, about it? Isn't there? But there's mm-hmm. kind of like there's this these new kind of ideas that basically that um, I think it's. Maybe it's come from um, Jacques Vallée um, originally that these things are here to develop us. The makers question um, the possibilities that we have, um, and so we aspire to. Right, um, that's a spaceship, so therefore it's possible. So therefore we go and build one. <clears throat> I'm not sure about that. Um, I'm not sure that there's anybody in UFOs. Um, certainly, there's this phenomenon like ball lightning, which we know is just an electrical thing, but that doesn't behave the same way as these lights. These lights move with a sense of consciousness, but maybe that's our perception of them. They look like they have a purpose and they're going somewhere um, when you see them. Um, and I've had one go past me that it was about the size of a melon. It was absolutely peach. It was bright, or- bright orange. And it didn't care about me one single bit. It wasn't interested in me. But it shot off up the corridor, took a bend in the corridor and continued. So that wasn't ball lightning because that would have gone straight through the wall. It would have exploded up the wall. Um, you have aircraft uh, uh, passengers talking about these experienced pilots. The same thing, these lights pass through and they're on their route. I think maybe we're living with another species that we just don't understand in the same way that before there were microscopes, people couldn't see bacteria or what have you. Maybe we just don't have the ability to, to yet. And when we do, it will just be like, oh, mm-hmm. it's them. And we'll have a name for it. Um, there's Life forms in all manner of different environments. To think that the air is free of life is is yeah. ridiculous. Do you think they have um, a special relationship to these lines? I've no idea. 
I've no idea, but the, you know, it's all the same information, isn't it? And certainly, when I've seen Bulls of Light in this place, they're on that they're on that line. Um, <clears throat> our front door, by the way, I should point out, our front door aligns almost exactly with the east door of the church that's um, that's next to us, which would be the entrance for taking um, uh, bodies into the church. Uh, we just want to point that out, and it's got a cemetery next to it, um, and then further to the right. There's actually another cemetery, a much bigger one for the town. So there's a lot around here. Top of the hill, slightly to the left, you've got a public footpath which goes across the fields, the old public footpaths. They're the corpse roads. <coughs> They're no longer in use. So the, even the hill is directly connected to a public footpath. Um, and I'm in, I'm in, um, um, I'm, I live just outside of Durham, um, which, you know, it's got a medieval cathedral in it um, and it's got a huge history. Um, I mean, um, um, anybody watching that programme, The Last Kingdom, um, you'll, you're looking at basically where, I, where I'm living. If you get to see that on uh, Netflix or what have you. Um, this is where the Vikings were when they settled. So it's a magical area with a lot of fairy mythology attached to it which i still haven't tracked down that's one of the things which i need to do um with um andy Pachoric um at some point we keep promising ourselves that we're going to be going out and looking at all of these sites and actually being there the legend of oberon um, that shakespeare had in the midsummer night's dream that comes from this area um so it's a, it's a magical place it's the land of the raven king in um the uh Oh, what's the name of that book? Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Have you have you read this? Oh, guys, you're missing a treat. It's about the return of English magic into Victorian um, um, times um, and the, the return of these older traditions. And they're all coming from County Durham. They're all coming from the, what was known as the land of the Raven King, which is where I'm living. So <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know what they are. The word fairy has so many dodgy connotations to it, doesn't it? Uh, mm -hmm. do you, don't you feel a bit uh, um, embarrassed to say to people, I believe in fairies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that, you know, a lot of that's because of popular culture and Tinkerbell and all this kind of, of like, you know, it's it's got this kind of girly connotation. But if you look at the folklore, it's it's actually pretty far uh, from that. Pretty extreme yeah. in a lot of ways. You don't want to mess with them. Well, I, I think just too, like, you know, ley lines and these corpse roads and this the ritual associated with it. Is there anything that you can kind of like any conclusions that you can kind of come to about this? Or is there anything that you've got or, or is that just as mysterious as what inhabits them? Yeah. Something's happening. Mm. Something's been happening for a long time and it's still happening. My question is this church, the nearest one to me is Victorian. <coughs> so therefore, has a new corpse road formed to link to that church, or has that church been placed on its site because it was yep. available and it just happens to be on a former corpse road that was going to the older church? Chicken and the egg. Um, who knows? But you, you just don't know. I mean, it, the fact that a new one could form, why not? 
why why not? Why are you why are we presuming this is just an ancient thing and they're already there and it's static? Why why could it not be that this phenomenon is capable of kind of like just going off on another route and let's right. make another one? And I think especially if um, people were were creating these lines as a way to basically, you know, join the heavens and earth, that kind of intention is really putting something into it. Yes, yeah, it is. You know, and if it's in a straight line and if it has these um, these monuments and objects in it, I mean, it's got to have developed some kind of power, if only psychological. And from a chaos magic point of view, as long as you think it's there, it, it will be. So as long as people believe that it is there, they'll be forming it. Um, which is interesting in itself, again. Um, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to that whole thing of the observer over the proton and how it's going to behave when measured. Um, <coughs> sorry, I'm getting a dry throat. That's the kind of principle uh, behind how um, things kind of work um, in the universe, and we don't understand why. You know, is this actually just something, you know, very similar um, that we have the ability to create? And um, and maybe until Alfred Watkins turned up and said, I've seen this and I think there's something there. Maybe there wasn't. <laughs> maybe it took him to kind of like go, away. it's that thing. And then it was because that's the nature of the universe. And everything else has just spun from it and created it. Um, you know, what I found interesting was how much does a, does a tree, yeah. do you hit the tree falling in the forest? Does it actually fall if you can't hear it or, you know, sorry. So there's so what much criticism of, of Watkins and saying, you know, this is just, if you take any uh, random distribution of sites, you could draw these lines through it naturally. Yeah. But in, but in the archaeological study of the Southwest in particular, these were, you know, these archaeologists were drawing lines through things without yeah. connecting it to it. And it didn't have that stigma attached to like Watkins had. And so they're just like going at it and drawing lines through these different sites here. So it's, that's what kind of struck me. Yeah. But yeah, that's how lines work, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's, this is the reason why people see things like pentagrams on Washington and, and stuff like that. Or, um, you know, the, the pentagram in Whitechapel where Jack the Ripper murdered all of these victims, which doesn't look like a pentagram. <laughs> that's just because someone's connected the points up. Um you could connect the points up in a different way and it would look like, I don't know, something else, which would not be related. Um, so um, I don't, I, I, I just don't know. But isn't that the marvellous thing about all of this? Is, is yeah. the not knowing is better almost than finding out the, um, the actual truth. Um, the Loch Ness Monster being a, a large fish that's not interesting. <laughs> Who cares <laughs> if it's a sturgeon? That's so dull. <laughs> it's a lot better that it's something that Aleister Crowley yeah. um, conjured up at the Liskin House, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I want Cthulhu in there. You know, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't want a ferret. <laughs> All right, John. Thank, thank you so much. This has been awesome, brother. Yeah. Um, you know, this this has been a great little uh, little discussion about ley lines and all kinds of different oh, things. I've enjoyed myself. Yeah, thank absolutely, you for having man. me. Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, you want to tell everybody where uh, where they can find you, or what you're working on recently, oh, and what you've been a part right. of? 
I've, I've got a list of me uh, of, of links that I, I sent you guys. Just pop them on the bottom of the. Let's not let's not bore people with reading out dots and comms and things. Um, there's. Um, I, I said that I'd basically I'd big up um, Andy's book this afternoon when I told him I was going to cite him. Um, yeah. Now, um, you know, that's a great book. Um, it's called Strange Lands by Andrew L. Pachorek, and it's um, published by Dr- Dreamer Press, which is D-R-E-M-O-U-R. Um, and it was published in 2019. You can buy that online. Um, the Weird Harvest books, um, uh, they need to be plugged because yes, all absolutely. the money he goes to charity. We do everything volunteer. Um, and they're good, aren't they? It's not just kind of like, I'm not just very saying good. That. Very <laughs> good. There's some and really that, interesting stuff in there. The interview with Walter Bosley you did is in uh, what volume of Urban Weird is that in? I think it's in the second volume. The Spirit of uh, Place? Um, yeah. Okay. Yes, it'll be in that one. It'll be in that one one i believe um and you can get those from um from um uh, it is actually the the the, the it's through it's through lulu but it, it's an actual press um yeah. and that's just uh, um well your https colon slash slash folk horror revival.com mm-hmm. which is all one word slash weird dash harvest dash press and you'll find all of those that's um, w-y-r-d yeah, it's W Y R D, not um, W E I R D. So yeah, me working on all manner of different things. Any job that will come my way, as far as illustration or writing is concerned. Um, I've got um, I've got a chainsaw that I'm doing up at the moment. Um, part of, part of a chainsaw, <laughs> which is the weirdest job. And um, I've also been commissioned to do some designs for a for a, a knife handle. Um, <laughs> there's something weird happening there. There's something to do with blades coming my way. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, but the chainsaw is weird. Um, he's into Rob Zombie, and um, he wants um, he wants some kind of Rob Zombie type um, writing up the side of his chainsaw, as you do. Cool. <laughs> because because why not? Pr- you know, and it's a present for his wife to hang on the wall. Yeah, <laughs> 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 that'll keep the fairies away. Um, I've got uh, a lot going on with uh, a friend Chris Carr in Chicago, who's uh, producing a. Um, he's, he's got a great app tracing H.P. Lovecraft sites around the globe. Um, and he's used GPS technology to say this is where it is. Um, it will tell you when you're close to it, and it will give you a passage from one of his stories, um, etc. Um, and then what myself and other people do is we produce illustrations for the story, so you can see it imagined. Um, and it's it's it works. I can tell you this because I don't live far from Hadrian's Wall, and my phone was constantly telling me you are near Adrian's wall this is a Lovecraft site um, and uh, so yeah it's really exciting and we're starting to move into trying to do something with VR we're exploring that that's the next thing that him and I are discussing 
which is going to be a really interesting thing. We're going to try and because uh, we're really both into those old fashioned stereoscopic images of the two photographs. So we're looking at basically how we can incorporate that. Um, and I don't know how to yet, but it's really interesting because I'm starting to look at simulated universes and VR and um, reading William Gibson and stuff. And uh, cool, I so that's that a whole stuff. new area for me. Yeah. All right, John. I, excellent. Well, hold on the line for us. We're going to close this section out, and guys, we'll be back to close out this show on Conspiracy Normal. Okay. Uh, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. And uh, we just had a really great interview with John Chadwick, who we also going to do about to do a Patreon segment with. So you guys are going to have that for this coming Friday or Saturday. And uh, Serfiel, uh, some thoughts, man. Thank you also for putting this together with uh, with John. Yeah, um, like I said before, I just really wanted to kind of provide a background to these ideas and, and uh, go over the multiple dimensions of these ideas um, that, you know, appear to be as old as humanity and all across the world and, uh, you know, might have some modern connections as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it was kind of a learning experience for me because this is a topic that I don't know a lot about. And I'm glad that we kind of tied in Walter Bosley. Uh, his work and then also we tied in kind of like a well about like the fairy realm and folklore revolving around that um it was really uh it was really good and then also to hear john's like um personal stories and i think in the uh patreon we're going to talk about uh dowsing and like thin places too so you guys are going to get some more of this interview um so if you want to go to patreon and see what we got going on there Serfiel can tell you how to do that. You can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal, or if you don't want to sign up for a subscription, you can make a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. Help keep the lights on. Uh, we're going to be investing in some equipment stuff in the future, so that will definitely help. Yeah, absolutely. And guys, also, you can go to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And also, did I mention Patreon's only $1? Uh, we're YouTube channel, Experimental Podcast. We're about a thousand subscribers on there right now, so that's really good. And then also, what really helps us too on iTunes is getting um, nice five star reviews, like the following one that I just got yesterday. As we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, the twelfth of May. It says, "Good stuff." Conspiranormal is level headed, open minded, and ideologically diverse. There are hard to find characteristics for podcasts in this field. Keep up the good works, guys. Thanks for producing a stellar show. That's awesome. I'd like to thank I'd like to thank Reed Marks for 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 sending that. Uh, Thanks a lot, man. That really helps us out that way too. So it just rises us in the rankings. So, all right, guys, that's it. Uh, we will be back next time with some more weirdness, strange, paranormal, conspiracy related stuff on. Conspiracy
the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.